Um, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have Jack open us in prayer and give him his your, your attention. Father, we just thank you for today. Thanks for the blessings you give us daily, and thank you for the day for bringing you good to us. Thank you for the assurance that we read in Ephesians that uh, that you predestined us, that we are saved, that the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Thank you again for your blessings, and we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Great um, We'll go ahead and uh, open this morning with Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Whoever gets there first would like to read out. Oh, I've got quiet. Um, even though it may be burdensome, 
So talked about being brought into the net and having an oppressive burden laid upon us and uh, being in submission to men, which is not the way that we were designed to be. Um, and that went through fire and through water. And so in some respects that's reflective of the experience that the Israelites went through, but it's also reflective of what we go through in our lives. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. And then there's the offerings that are brought forth. And uh, so those of you that have studied Leviticus understand the offerings, and the, it speaks specifically to that. Tim? So the reason I brought this one up is because this is what uh, we did in the men's prayer meeting this morning here at church. So talk to the men for a second. We're going to start meeting about 8 and pray on Sunday mornings. This was a result of the men's camp this past month or whatever, two months ago, whatever it was. Um, we want to start praying. And so this morning, uh, Josh Long picked this one, and uh, he said the first part of it, you know, we got to start with praise. You know, then we bring supplications and all that. So, anyway, men, <laughs> come do the prayer thing. Eight you o'clock. Know, it's, it's actually, I was actually very blessed. Yeah. First one, I think, was this morning. So. Well, and it's continuing to bless as we go through the day. I think, like I said, I think it's very appropriate because um, we're looking at Ephesians, and we're still in chapter 1, which Tim will tease me about until we get to chapter 2, and then will tease me about that. <clears throat> so, I always start out, what's Ephesians about? It's about understanding who we are in Christ and having that affect our lives in such a way that we walk in accordance with that. So, um, and that ultimately that's going to be really important. So even, I say ultimately, it's, it's important now, but it'll be really important when we face great trial. Um, so we read in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in order to walk in that manner uh, worthy of the calling, we need to understand what the calling is. We need to understand our identity. <clears throat> Paul, in writing Ephesians, one of the great theological treaties uh, in the form of a letter uh, to the church at Ephesus and to uh, the broader circle of churches at the time and to us today. It, it has, uh, in many ways, kind of general truths about our position in Christ, which are really important to understand. And so, uh, as Jack was praying this morning... Um, we are grateful for our salvation. It's important for us to understand our salvation and associated with that, what God is doing for us and in us um, in saving us. And so we, last week, uh, I put up on the board uh, a way of understanding different uh, theological perspectives. And uh, you was everybody here last week uh, or in some way attuned to that? Did it, did it challenge you? Um, the, the purpose of describing the, the kind of fundamental uh, theological positions was so that as we work through some of the scripture, you'll have a basis of understanding, uh, at least from my perspective, of what the fundamental issues are. Um, how our relationship was with God prior to sin, what happened when sin entered in, what God is doing on our behalf as a result of sin. 
and ultimately what our destiny with him is. And so I, I drew up um, some understanding of, um, and I can draw it again if you'd like, but an understanding of um, where we were positionally with uh, God. Uh, and that we read in Ephesians, I guess probably a better place to start is I'll just read through the first 14 verses of Ephesians because it speaks to where we are positionally with God and our identity um, in Christ. And then I'll, I'll go back to that drawing I did last week. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, <coughs> to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, in the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> so, as we were working through this, I started out um, wanting to make sure that everybody had a uh, kind of an introduction on their mind to the will of God, understanding the will of God. And so there was a, a short uh, one-page, two-page, that I put out on the will of God that talks about the different aspects of the will of God. When we talk about the will of God, we're actually talking about um, theology proper, right? So when you look at theology proper, it means the study of God, you're looking at his person and his work. And we're going to touch somewhat on uh, person today uh, because there are, there are specific attributes that are... Uh, that are who God is, um, and how He, um, how we see Him, or how we—it's uh, um, kind of like. Well, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more. And then there's that which God does, right? So understanding His will is an aspect of, of God's work. Why He's doing is the work that He is doing, and. So we, we wanted to understand the different um, categories, if you will, of God's will. So we understand that there's uh, that which he decrees. As, in, in other words, uh, he spoke and 
all that is created was created. Right? He decreed. He said, in the beginning, it says in the Bible, in the beginning, what does it say? God created the heavens and the earth. Right? So his creative act was his decree of what he was going to do as a result of who he is. So he decreed that, and that decree is, I would say, involatile. In other words, um, what God says is, is what it is. It's not something that we can argue with. Um, just like we can't argue with gravity, you can try to argue with gravity if you jump out of a plane, but that argument will end abruptly, and you will succumb to gravity, right? That's just the way it is. That is part of God's decree. That's the way that it works. And then there's also that which God commands. So we understand that there are precepts, that there is a, an order to his creation and um, an expected response of his creatures to his creation and him as creator. And so he is, we understand those as precepts, right? So we would call that preceptive will. Um, we also understand that there is uh, a will of God that he desires but um, doesn't force. So we, I call that the desiderative will. It's, it's what God's intent is. Um, and you'll find analogs of all of these in our own life, except for maybe decree. We can't really decree anything. But we do have commands that we give, like I tell my kids how they should behave, and that's the way it's going to work. Oh, yeah. But I also have a permissive will. God has a permissive will. There are those things which he decrees, or which he uh, commands, that... Um, we have a certain amount of freedom as to whether we're going to respond to that or not. Right? It doesn't mean that um, the end result changes. In other words, God said, don't eat of the fruit of that tree because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Right? And we understand that the temptation that was given to, to Adam and Eve is that if they ate of that fruit, they would become like God, knowing good and evil that they would be able to be the judge. And there is only one judge. That they would be able to declare what goodness was. There is only one who declares what goodness was. And it flows from who he is. And so God said, the day that you do that, the moment that you enter into that, that rebellion, um, death enters in with it. And that's just the way it is. Now we have a choice in that. In other words, there was a permissive will of God. He allowed um, Adam and Eve to make a choice as to whether they would obey or disobey. So he had a permissive will. Now it was his desire that they would obey and have life. And the, we know that that was his desire, that they would have life, because he put the tree of life in the garden with them. That was something that they could have entered into. They could have entered into, having eaten that fruit, entered into an eternal communion with God. Right? But they, as a result of their choice, were blocked from that. And sin entered in. So we understand that these aspects of will are somewhat communicative to us. And that we have uh, desire and intent. We have um, permissive will, that which we allow. We have that which we command. And I'll, I'll give you examples of this as we work through the, the idea 
of um, decree. Because in order to understand election, which is God's choosing us, we need to understand decree first. We need to understand his will. We need to understand what decree is and what it means and what the boundaries of it are and how we, how we wrestle with that. And then that will help inform us when we talk about election. And specifically, I'm uh, referring to verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And we read that in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. So the really huge theological concepts there, that idea of predestination, that idea of uh, choosing, and when that choice occurred before the foundation of the world so we understand intent and purpose, and that's what decree is all about. And ultimately, what Paul, in this argument, wants us to understand is he wants us to understand the incredible work that God has done in saving us, right? Is that um, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, right? That's, those are important concepts that we need to understand because they're foundational to understanding our salvation, which I uh, put out a couple of other uh, short write-ups, one on... Uh, Conditional security and one on unconditional security. And I hope you all got, got two write-ups there. And that um, one of the things that's going to happen, so if you didn't get two, which ones did you get? There should be one that says support for unconditional security, and then there should be one that says support for conditional security. Okay. So... I'm not sure how that how that all happened, and I'm not sure so that's conditional. So, okay, so there's there's uh, unconditional over there. Okay, this is conditional. Okay, yeah. So, uh, just two letters difference at the top, but those are really two important letters. Unconditional security and conditional security. Because it goes back to that drawing that I did last week. Understanding where we were before the fall, what happened in the fall, the extent of our freedom, and the extent of God's grace. Does that make sense? So where we were before the fall, where we were after the fall, the extent of our freedom and the extent of God's grace. That's what I was talking about last week. And before the fall, it is described that it was um, possible not to sin. The state of man was that we were in a place where it was possible not to sin. And as a result of the fall it became not possible not to sin. Right? So we understand, and we call that total depravity. That as a result of the fall, man went from a place where 
he could choose. It was possible not to sin, and it was possible to sin. That's the state that he was in. And after the fall, it was not possible not to sin. That when sin entered in, it had a universal effect, not just on Adam and Eve, but it affected all of the descendants of Adam and Eve, of which we are. Well, I guess we're talking theology here. So you yeah. said it's not possible not to sin. I think that's true for all of us. But isn't there an age of accountability or whatever? And so... Mm. Well, you always tease out the really tough stuff right up front. The children. What about the children? So, um, as what happens if that child at two years old? Let's 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 say this child is two years old, right? So clearly, before what we would call the age of accountability, Um, and some natural disaster happens, or some illness happens or some accident happens, that child can die, right? And will die if it's, if it's an extreme enough event, right? And that happens. We know that. And we mourn that when that happens. We think, wow, this child didn't have the opportunity to grow up and even get to an age of accountability and answerable to God. But why is death there? Is death natural or unnatural? Unnatural. Unnatural. Anybody say that death is natural? I would say death is is not natural. It's unnatural. Because the way that God created humanity, he said this is very good, and death was not part of that picture. So that that child dies at two years old before an age of accountability tells us something about the, the state that that child is in. That child has inherited from Adam um, sinfulness. We would call that original sin. Even though it may not have been a conscious, willful rebellion against the parent. Although, even at two years old, you'll find a conscious, willful rebellion. <laughs> right? The question is accountability. Accountability in that. And, and all have sinned, and all, as a result of that, inherit that death all have sinned all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God right so um, when you talk about accountability accountability for original sin everyone bears even though we might consider that unjust right so is there justice in that a two year old would face death when they didn't necessarily understand what willful rebellion is. Well, what we, I think more importantly, what we care about is will that child face eternal, uh, eternal death? Yeah. And so, um, so there we need to, uh, we're going to tease that one apart later because I'm going to set that aside because that's, that's one of those things we want to talk about. And, and it has to do with uh, is God good and can he be trusted? Right. Well, we want to know, is God good and can he be trusted? And then we're going to take a look at the outlier case there. So we have to establish one understanding before we can really take on the harder problem of that two-year-old. But we'll get there because it happens. Right? Um, what about those that um, die at, at uh, birth? I mean, clearly, 
they have not even had opportunity to even screen. Even the mentally retarded adult. Right. And, and we read about that. There's, there's actually scripture that informs us about uh, the grace of God in situations like that. But having brought up all those, it's not an excuse for us, you know. No, and that's what will happen is we, we miss the main part of what's going on here. Is God good and can he be trusted? And what does that mean about us in relationship to God? Um, because I'm not two years old anymore. Um, and so I am accountable, uh, in, even by reasonable standard of men, right? So at some point I became legally accountable, and, uh, and I'm also morally accountable before God. And I was morally accountable before God before I came legally accountable in this world. So, um, so we do want to understand that. We want to understand um, what happens... Uh, in those instances. In other words, we want to understand the extent of grace. We also want to understand the extent of free will. And so we, it was possible not to sin, and it was possible to sin in the state that man was created. But after the fall, it was not possible not to sin. And we call that total depravity. And most theologians today would accept that that is true. And so let me uh, bring up our, our uh, we're going to be moving into this guy here as we talk about decree. Um, and so when I say most theologians, I'm talking about, I can't tell if that's in focus or not, there's a little bit better. Okay. Um, I'm going to be talking about four positions primarily. What is, might be called consistent Calvinism, moderate Calvinism, or Wesleyanism, um, Arminian position, and then openness theology. Right? And those are positions that you will see uh, within the church and outside of the church today as people talk about these issues. So, consistent Calvinism. God causes all things to happen. He is open. The ultimate cause of everything. So we don't want to understand that word cause. Uh, nothing happens apart from God's purpose and without his approval. This world, as it actually happens, glorifies God maximally. That would be a statement from uh, a consistent Calvinist perspective. And those of you that have wrestled with theology before, you'll know what they call the TULIP model. T-U-L-I-P. It's an acronym that speaks to total depravity, which is the inability of man after the fall to choose the good over evil or to choose God over himself. That's probably more an accurate statement. That as a result of the fall, we choose ourselves rather than God. We put ourselves on the throne. So if you remember the Campus Crusade for Christ, they used to give the... Uh, the tracked out and it had a, a little throne there and, and it has who's sitting on the throne? You or Christ? Right? That's that idea. There's total depravity and uh, as a result of that you are on the throne. You, are, you have rebelled against God and made yourself like God knowing good and evil. You're, you're the decider of what is true and good. Um, and then there's 
what the you is unconditional election. In other words, God chooses us as a result of who he is. It has nothing to do with us. So it isn't because we're good, smart, um, beautiful, anything. In fact, none of that is true. We're stupid, we're foolish, we're really not very attractive in the sense of the glorious works of God. I mean, evidence of that in the heavens, um, which declare the glory of God. So he chooses us because of who he is. It doesn't, we don't influence that. That's unconditional election, unconditional choosing. Then they have a concept of limited atonement. Limited atonement means that that work which God did on behalf of man to save him, which we call the atonement, and it has uh, several aspects in atonement, was limited to those that God chose. So if he didn't choose you, that atonement isn't effective for you. It's limited. Um, The I, T-U-L-I, stands for irresistible calling. That when God chooses you, he makes a work in your life to woo you to him. Irresistible grace, irresistible calling. It's, it's the same. It is the grace of God working in your life to woo you to him. And, uh, and I, I put calling in there because uh, I think of Paul getting knocked off his horse, right? Paul was totally depraved. He was chosen for a purpose, which we read about. Um, and the atonement was effective for him. In fact, Christ came to him personally, knocked him off his horse, because Paul wouldn't respond to the wooing, right? And that wooing can occur in a lot of different ways. It can occur through rational uh, approach. So we see that, for example, in the scholastic era, in the Catholic Church. There was a great effort to um, understand the different um, doctrines and um, theologies regarding who God is and what he's doing. And that was a a totally rational approach. And that was a wooing. And there were those that were wooed in that period. So we understand that God can woo in a lot of different ways. It's irresistible. And it's always a result of grace. right? It's God's uh, grace which he has lavished upon us. right? And then finally the P is persistence of the saints. Those that are called. Those to whom the... um, Atonement applies those to uh, that they will, in the end, regardless of what you see now, no matter how stinky and smelly and smoky I am, um, when it all comes down to the final judgment, I will have persevered if I am saved um, in that uh, grace of God. So that would be the Calvinist understanding. That's the five points. That's the five points. Uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible calling of grace, uh, persistence of the saints, that you will persevere. That would be consistent Calvinism. Moderate Calvinism, or centrist Wesleyanism, um, is not so much concerned with answering the question, um, is my salvation secure? And that's why I have these two position papers here. Um, Conditional security and unconditional security. And you'll see scriptures that support the two positions. 
consistent Calvinism, moderate Calvinism to Arminianism. Right? So I'm going to, there's a, there's a blend here depending on how far down you go. And you might consider Wesleyanism Lutheranism. So Luther and Calvin had two different um, focuses in understanding what the problem of the day was. What's the ship theory? I'll get to, so um, when I talk about providence, so providence um, has to do with how um, God is providing for us, right? How we, um, I I have a whole section on providence. Um, What script theory is, is that we're basically living out a script, so it has to do with how much free will we have in that. So script theory says that uh, nothing happens apart from God's purpose and without his approval. So in that sense, if my free will is limited, it is scripted by God. He has foreordained all of the choices and actions that I'm ultimately going to make. And that that would go along with his choosing of me, right? So that would be uh, a strict Calvinist, consistent Calvinist position. Ship theory would be um, more in line with God's plan can't be frustrated and nothing we do surprises him. And that we're all on the ship together and you can try and mutiny, but you can't get off the ship. Right? You have ships, if the ship, you're on the ship and it left San Diego and you're going to Anchorage, you're going to end up in Anchorage. Right? Uh, unless you're a good swimmer. Um, and that unless you're a good swimmer, would be an Armenian position. It's like, yeah, it's possible to jump off the ship, uh, in which case we talk about free will theory. Right? So when you look at those positions as I drew them up, and I didn't draw openness theology last week, because I don't think God is surprised, and I don't think God is limited by us in any way. And um, so if I was to embrace openness theology, um, I would be... Um, limiting God, and I don't, so I don't choose to embrace that. We can talk about it if you want, but I'm going to focus on these top three. In uh, an Arminian position, it has to do with, so when we looked, I drew those three systems. The first one I drew was a, 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 a consistent Calvinist position. Total depravity, God's unconditional election, and that it is the unconditional election, the limited atonement, the irresistible calling or grace, um, and that will result in my ultimate persistence and I will be saved. Right? That was the first uh, section of the drawing that I had. So it went like this. Fall, redemption. It was pointed out, and, and I wish Bob Papka was here, because last week he said, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with trying to understand what was happening, what was the problem in that period of time when Calvin was writing. Um, so when Luther was writing, he was writing, his concern was about God's grace, understanding God's grace and our inability. And that was the second picture I drew, which I call Wesleyanism, which God's grace actually comes before. Sure enough, we're totally depraved, but um, in that place, we are totally unable to ever even hear God calling us to ever respond in any way to his choosing. So the only way that we can actually do that is if there's a grace that comes before. 
And that um, restores enough of our freedom, our ability to choose, such that we can hear the calling of God on our lives. That doesn't mean, it's not answering the question of choosing, God choosing us. It's answering the question of uh, the effectiveness of his grace, the extent of his grace. And that there is a grace that comes before, and then uh, from that point, there is an understanding of free will that even though that will may be limited, you may be on a ship, right? Um, and, and you have limits of the bounds of what you can choose, you still have uh, freedom within those bounds. And in that, you would look more at what God foreknows rather than what he predestines in our understanding of those words today. And we're going to unpack those words. What is foreknowledge? What is predestination? So is we that see, that you're talking about right now? What I'm talking about right now is what I call moderate Calvinism or central, central, centrist Wesleyanism. And the reason why I put it in the middle is because um, it would be, you're not a five-point Calvinist. You don't have T-U-L-I-P. In other words, you would say that, no, um, there is not a limited atonement. The atonement is uh, for all. And that means that there's a free will component where people can choose to come under that atoning sacrifice. I'm having a theological identity crisis. I don't know what I am now. Well, that's okay. We're going to work through it. And and, and it's not that... So when people say, well, what's your position, Dave? I say, well, I'm not an an ism, right? Because I believe the Bible... And what I believe is that the Bible talks to different um, questions that we might ask in different contexts. So I would say that the, the consistent Calvinist position was talking to the problem of security. How secure can we be in our salvation? And the reason why <clears throat> is because in the Reformation... Um, there was a statement that there is no salvation outside of the church. And the church held the power of excommunication. And if you were excommunicated, you were not only anathema from your culture and your, your community, you, you couldn't get a, a spot in the graveyard, right? Because you're excommunicated. Because you are outside of salvation. You are destined for damnation. And people that did not read the scripture, they only could get that from, uh, from the priesthood as the, uh, the order of the magisterium would present the interpretation of the scriptures to the people. Um, since they couldn't you know, uncover that themselves in a language that they could understand, all they could do is go to mass and, and uh, participate in the sacramental system when they were excommunicated from that because of the Reformation, because Martin Luther said, no, 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 it's not by, by works, it's by grace alone. And he quotes Ephesians, right? He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? <clears throat> when people said, yeah, I'm saved because of the power of God, not because of the power of the church, 
Now, the power of God may be in the church, and we will see that in the world, but it's the power of God, the grace of God that saves, the extent of grace. And that's what this moderate position would respond to. In consistent Calvinism, they were saying, no, 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 the problem we need to respond to is how safe, how secure is your salvation? If you're not in the church, you need to understand your justification, which is what Bob Packa brought up last week. He said, you know, if you look at justification, we have absolutely no role in that. So let me go back to uh, my order of salvation here. Um, if I follow this on through in our, uh, in our presentation. So when I look at um, what happens when you're saved, um, so I, I really wrestled with this because I did a lot of uh, evangelistic work as a uh, short-term missionary and was in long-term missionary work and trying to understand, one, how you communicate the gospel to people and how do you know that that is being effective, right? So it's not enough to just speak the words. I can read the Bible to you, but it's important for me to to speak in a way that you understand. Right? So I was trying to create understanding. That's what missionaries do. They try and create understanding, and then once that understanding is established, where you can speak heart to heart, you share the hope that is within you. Right? That's what happens. And so I needed to, to wrestle through what happens when a person is saved. It isn't just praying a prayer. Because I've seen lots of people pray a prayer. And... You know, they got their fire insurance and they continued on without a changed life. But that's not what Ephesians says. It says we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So I needed to understand that. I needed to understand what God is doing, um, that it is his choosing me that is vital and important. Because I believe as both the, the Calvinists, okay, so now I'm starting to show my bias, Forgive me for this. Um, and, and just because I have a bias doesn't mean that you can't wrestle with the issues and come to the conclusion you have, because you're not an ist or an ism either, right? So my bias says that I believe in total depravity. I don't believe that we partially fell. I don't believe in the argument of Pelagius, which says that I still have the ability to choose the good, and that if I am circumspect, and diligent in my walk, I can walk without sin. I don't believe that's true. Um, I don't believe it's true of anybody. I certainly know it's not true of me. Because at a very young age, I was totally rebellious, and I was pretty hard on too. Um, so um, I know that that is not the case for me, and that it was not possible for me not to sin. Not only in the, in the corporate sense of that I was going to die because Adam brought death into the world, but also in the personal sense, that when I would stand before my creator, I could not answer to his, um, his preceptive will, his command to me to be holy as he is holy. I was not, not there, right? So I understood that it is God's work on our behalf, his choosing us, reaching down, that makes it possible for me to be saved. Now the, the area that so if I look at the work that is totally God's 
where I don't even have to be cognizantly aware of it. I would say election, I don't have to be cognizantly aware. In fact, I will not be. Because God chose me before the foundation of the world, it says. Right? So that means it wasn't possible for me to in any way influence or have knowledge of that which he was doing. He did it because of who he is. It is totally the work of God. I would say that justification also falls in that same category. Who, who knows what justification is? What's justification? Just as if I never did it. Just as if I never sinned. That's, that's one way that people like to think of justification. But I think, isn't justification kind of like an ongoing sanctification? Well, I would say that sanctification is an ongoing work. Um, justification, so what happened when sin entered in? What happened? The command was broken, right? And the penalty for that command had already been, um, breaking that command had already been established, um, so that means if you appeared before the judge, the one who declared what good and right is, you would be unrighteous. What justification is, it's a way of, of taking a person from a state of unrighteousness to a state of righteousness. In other words, you can then be in the presence of a holy God. Now it doesn't mean that you didn't do the, the deed that you didn't sin. In fact, what justification is, is in the face of your sin, what Christ did established your position before God as justified. So that when the, the books are open, we read about in Revelation, and um, we stand before God and an accuser will stand there and he'll say, look at Dave that dirty, smelly critter of yours, right? Let's go back, and, and, the, and the books are open, and the, the deeds of my life, if that's the way you would interpret that, are disclosed before all in shame, right? God, when he gets to the end of that, says, yeah, but my son covered that sin. That's one of the meanings of atonement. So that that offense is removed. Those sins are as far as the east is from the west. Right? Which, you're going east, you're always going east, you're going west, you're always going west, never the twain shall meet. That sin is covered, the offense is no longer there. In addition to that, that atonement also paid the price. So the penalty which I incurred, the debt, has now been canceled. That's all about justification. Now, did I have any part in that? Could I possibly have anything to do with covering my sin? No. Could I possibly have anything to do with paying the debt? No. Right? But so, you still live with the consequence. The consequence is... I mean, if you murdered somebody, you right. can spend the rest of your life in jail. Right. But you could be forgiven by... So, so, so there's, there's a, it's not a lack of accountability. Justification does not mean you're not accountable. So that's why I would maybe take exception with just as if I'd never sinned. But rather, it's what happens where God declares you 
um, righteous in, in Christ. I like that a lot better. <laughs> so it's a legal uh, declaration. It's a decree. Right? And that's what I think uh, justification is. Right? So it's totally a work of God. I think glorification, totally a work of God. It's not possible for me to quicken my physical body such that I am immortal. Right? God created me both uh, spiritual uh, and material. So I have an immaterial aspect, a soulish nature, a spiritual nature, um, a willful nature, all those things that we describe about the characteristics of ourselves, whether it be personality or heart. Um, I have that aspect, but I also have this physical part. And what we understand is, is that when we are raised from the dead, when we are glorified, we will be as he is. Jesus had a physical body at his resurrection. So he didn't go and appear as a ghost to people, and that was what they thought, right? There was something special and unique, one of a kind, about Jesus and that he could be immediately in their presence in a closed room. But nonetheless, he could say, touch, touch me. See the scar that was put there for you. Watch me eat. Right. And, and in that sense, we are physical. So um, you're saying totally God is one, two, three, six... Justification and glorification six and eight. Just yeah. to kind of complete this, what is totally us or what is partially us? Well, that's where we gotta wrestle with some of the understandings of decree. We need to understand that the, the extent of God's grace. And we need well so so I'm, I'm I'm defining two positions and arguing to that more so than the Armenian position. In the Armenian position, I I believe dangerously embraces the Pelagian heresy. It was de declared a heresy that you could, through uh, control of your will and circumspection and diligence, not sin. Right. So that's what Pelagius said. It's possible not to sin. And what I'm saying is, no, possible not to sin, possible to sin, was the state of man before the fall. After the fall, it's not possible not to sin. And apart from God, you can never get to a place again, where it's possible not to sin. And I would say that that place comes through God's grace. That when salvation is presented to you such that you can hear the calling, um, that um, that requires God's grace to come before. So in that sense, I'm trying to understand the extent of God's grace. I'm not trying to understand justification. I'm not trying to understand election which are two pieces that Calvin was really concerned about. If you want to know how sure your salvation is, let's build the justification argument. God justified us in Christ. That is irrefutable, right? I cannot lose that. So when, when Calvin was arguing the things that he was arguing um, in presenting his uh, doctrines, um, he was... Um, answering the problem of can you lose your salvation? Not what is the extent of God's grace and how you enter into salvation. He did talk to that to some degree in talking about unconditional election, which I would agree with. But a 
moderate Calvinist rather than a consistent Calvinist would say, well, you know, that limited atonement thing gives me a little bit of heartburn because I read scripture that says, no, it's not limited. The work of Christ is not limited and there isn't double predestination. Those that are predestined to salvation and those that are predestined to damnation. And that's what we need to wrestle with, right? So if you take that hardline Calvinist position, consistent Calvinism, there are areas that I think would make a lot of people uncomfortable. And that's why I present the two papers for you. And I encourage you to read through them. There's a lot of scripture there. And it summarizes both the Arminian position and the Calvinist position, which are the two extremes. And I'm saying that there is, if you understand what the, the theological positions are trying to answer, the problem that they're trying to answer, um, there actually some consistency between a consistent Calvinist position and a, a moderate Calvinist position. And that um, there is a gracious work of God on behalf of man that allows us to have a, a free will to respond. And I base that on my understanding of love. Right? Um, I don't believe in Hollywood love. In fact, what I, I think of love is, is choosing. Right? So every morning, I turn to my wife and I say, thank you for choosing me. Thank you for choosing me in the past. Thank you for choosing me, hopefully today. Right? Thank you for choosing me till death do us part. Right? And that there is a, a level of um, commitment of the person in choosing that is irrevocable, it is eternal. And it it's an act of the will, or it involves an act of the will. So God willed to choose us. He willed to love us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? So, I, I, I think this is really, really, really important. The idea of election. We're going to unpack election. We're out of time. And what I would say is that the difference between the moderate Calvinist position or the Wesleyan position and the centrist Calvinist position is this order right here. Which comes first? Conversion or regeneration? A centrist Calvinist position or a consistent uh, Calvinist position rather than a moderate would have regeneration come first. first. It is more important that the Spirit do His work in your life as a totally uh, total work of God um, than the actual conversion experience which involves you. That would be a, a limited atonement understanding uh, of a, a, a consistent Calvinist approach. So regeneration would come before conversion. Wesleyanism or Lutheranism would put conversion before regeneration. And that the the two are very difficult to separate. How do we tease this apart? How do we say, where is the spirit acting and where is the will of man coming into accord? So accord is a great word, alignment. right? It isn't the will of man that causes us to be born again. But nonetheless, it is the will of man that is involved because it actually changes you. Jesus said, when you were born again, it's, it's like... Uh, the wind. You don't know where it comes from, 
regeneration, or where it's going to, but you see the effect of it. And in order to see the effect of it, it has to change how you walk. So I would say that these two are very difficult to tease apart. So when you look at a, a more moderate position or a more uh, consistent Calvinism hard five point, there actually is very little difference between the two. It's rather more about how you take those scriptures in the context for the problem that they're trying to answer. There isn't necessarily disagreement, which would give us some uh, schizophrenia about what's our theological position. Well, the way I see it is conversion involves man's will. It does. And you can't have rebirth until man has made a choice to ask for that. Right. And then rebirth happens. So it doesn't only make sense to me that it's conversion and then regeneration. And, and so I listed it this way. I could have flipped a coin and listed it the other way. I listed it this way because I would say, even though people will call themselves a Calvinist, they probably lean more to this order in salvation. But you can't do regeneration against man's will. You can't. That's what I would say. If there is a, a grace that comes before that is effectual to actually be able to, one, to save you, and two, to make it possible for you to be saved. Right? So two different aspects of that grace. Um, then uh, if, if that is true, um, it involves the will of man at some point. And the, the point of, of uh, discussion comes around, well, is it because God scripted and I don't have the full extent of free will um, what I'm doing as opposed to is this you know, God's will in my life, but I can, I can truly say, okay, no, I don't want to love you. I don't want to choose you. Um, is that possible? And, and that's really kind of the, the decision point. But I would say, if you look at it in different contexts, you'll answer uh, on both sides of the fence. And, and they're not that far apart. So we're out of time, unfortunately, and I still didn't make the progress I wanted to make. But I, I, what I would like you to do is I'd like you to read through um, understanding uh, the um, characteristics um, of decree and that how decree is actually um, part of who God is so it's theology proper but it's on the work side and understanding will um, and I think you can probably just read through and look up the scriptures all the way down to um, where we talk about uh, sovereignty and freedom so it's important to understand necessity and certainty and how that influences our arguments for uh, different theological positions. But when you get down here to sovereignty and freedom, there's a lot of debate. And rather than, than go through uh, Aristotle's explanations, I think we'll jump right into uh, who hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's what we'll start with next time. So I won't go back and, uh, and retrace this ground that I've been tracing, trying to help call out what the arguments are. We'll just go straight to who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did, harden, did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And once we get through understanding that issue, which is going to speak to um, grace and free will, 
and those two basic theological systems, uh, so I'm kind of excluding Arianism here, uh, although I'm not going to totally exclude it, we'll talk about election. And if you could read through um, this as a preview, I think we could actually move through election next week. Um, so that's your homework. A lot, of, a lot of stuff, and I realize that part of this is kind of a spiral development. It's a hermeneutical spiral that we're on here, so we want to understand that. And I appreciate that you give me the liberty to do this every week uh, as far as taking a lot of time and, and trying to answer tough questions. I think the last question we answer after we go through election is what about that two-year-old? Um, once we've addressed an understanding of he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, <clears throat> that we should then wrestle with how does that apply in our daily living? Right? So that's where we're going to be going. Um, I'll be here for questions immediately afterwards. Lord, I just thank you for opportunity to uh, wrestle through um, your scripture this morning. And I realize that we're bringing up a lot of uh, classic arguments and, um, and not just reading through scripture, but trying to help inform the way that the scriptures are interpreted. Lord, ultimately, we want to rely upon uh, your word and your spirit, the illumination that comes through you in us uh, to help us understand. And the purpose of understanding is to draw near, Lord, that we would come into the light that you could cleanse us and purify us and make us holy as you are holy so that we can have communion with you. And Lord, that is truly the desire of our heart and the direction we want to go. Not that we can make great arguments for one theological position or another, but that we're able to um, be whole in you, in Christ, that we would know our identity and that that would affect us and how we live and that people, that even if we would never... Uh, share the gospel like the Romans wrote, people would see it in our lives and they would know who you are by observing your ambassadors in the world. Lord, that's our desire and our, our wish. And I just thank you for um, this opportunity to kind of drill into that this morning. Lord, ask that you would uh, continue to protect us and provide for us, that, uh, you know, every breath that we take is from you and every, every good thing and many ways we don't understand what good is, um, Lord, is who you are and what you're doing in our lives. As we read the psalm this morning, there are times of trial and testing, but it's such that you can bring us into um, your presence and that we can share an abundance of who you are. Lord, we just thank you for that. Lord, uh, ask for your protection, your provision. We thank you for your uh, sacrifice for us. We ask that you would be with Bob this morning as he expounds your word, that many would hear and be saved, Lord. And that it is our desire that, uh, as it is yours, that all would come to a knowledge of you and that um, would have a place in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this we pray in your name. Amen.